Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of Running Mates. I'm your host, Lars Emerson, and as always, joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. Hello. This is the podcast where we look at every presidential election through the lens of vice presidential picks. We talk about who they should have chosen instead. After eight years of Bush in the White House, the country is looking for hope and change. And maybe, just maybe, in 2008, the vice presidential picks this year can deliver. Let's set the scene for 2008, Mike. Two years prior, in 2006, Democrats sweep the midterms and win both houses of Congress against an increasingly unpopular President Bush and his Republican Party. By the time the Democratic primaries are kicking off, Bush's approval ratings are sub 30%, largely a result of a botched response to Hurricane Katrina, increasingly unpopular foreign wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, with decreasing evidence of success or reasoning for them, controversial social security and immigration reforms. The dude was just not very well liked, you see? No. Further depressing the environment for Bush and his party, economic indicators are going kind of wild right now. Bankruptcies are up, the stock market is rocky, and going into 2008, an economic crisis is definitely on the way, if not yet fully realized. What's going on over in the Republican Party, Mike? Well, they really want people to stop thinking about George W. Bush as quickly as possible, so the Republican field gets pretty crowded pretty quick. Uh, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani was the early frontrunner. He led polls throughout 2007 and early 2008, with Arizona Senator John McCain and former Tennessee Senator Fred Thompson nipping at his heels. The primary was held in 2008, though, so, and by that time, Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, Texas Representative Ron Paul had all entered the race. Huckabee would win in the Iowa caucuses, but he would run out of money pretty quickly, and he finished a fairly distant third New Hampshire McCain and Romney, uh, fighting a war on two fronts against the evangelical conservative Huckabee and the Massachusetts moderate Romney. McCain would defeat both of them in the South Carolina and Florida primaries. After which Giuliani, who absolutely failed to catch on at all, dropped out. Uh, after winning California and seven other states in Super Tuesday, McCain found himself in the lead, but not too much of a lead since Huckabee and Romney won five and seven states respectively. Romney did drop out after Super Tuesday, though, and McCain was able to win most of the remaining primaries against Huckabee and the ever-persistent Paul, sewing up the nomination in March. All right, good for McCain, good for McCain. On the Democratic side, well, after the unpopular Bush is winding down his term, Democrats smell blood. And initially, many Democrats throw their hats in the ring, including running mate star John Edwards, Delaware Senator Joe Biden, cool guy Bill Richardson, Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack, freshman Illinois Senator Barack Obama, who's that, right? Ohio Representative Dennis Kucinich. Former presidential losers like Al Gore and John Kerry both also considered to run, but perhaps wisely stayed out due to the crowded field and the entrance of the instant frontrunner, New York Senator and former First Lady, Hillary Clinton. As the Iowa caucuses approached, the race had narrowed and Barack Obama had managed to build up some momentum against Clinton, who had pulled in the lead for basically the entirety of the last year, of 2007. Obama ends up winning Iowa with 38% of the vote, followed by Edwards in second place, and then Clinton in third. However, Clinton stages a major comeback in New Hampshire, and a brutal slog towards the finish line ensues, with Edwards having done the best of the remaining candidates eventually dropping off. Congratulations, Edwards, you got third place in the 2008 primary. This leaves a historic potential ticket for the Democratic Party, where they will either nominate their first ever African-American candidate or the first ever woman candidate leading the party in the general election. After Super Tuesday, Obama and Clinton were basically near a delegate tie, and it remained that way, though Obama gradually started to pick up more and more superdelegate endorsements, making the math increasingly difficult for Clinton. The race went on for several months, becoming increasingly bitter with state-by-state -state drama and nail-biting results. Finally, in early June, on the day of the final primaries, Obama announced 60 additional superdelegate endorsements, which would unofficially give him a majority of delegates, and Clinton conceded the race and endorsed Obama several days later. Fun fact, this is the first election since 1952 that neither the incumbent president nor incumbent vice president was a nominee. Also the first in which two sitting senators were opposing each other. Oh, wow. All right, let's talk about who they each chose as their running mate. So 
Obama's running mate decision received a lot of attention because it was a fairly new senator, right? Many Clinton supporters agitated for for a quote-unquote dream ticket, which was Obama-Clinton, even though there was a very brutal primary there. Um, But reporting indicates that Obama's shortlist basically came down to three men. It was Indiana Senator Evan Bayh, Virginia Governor Tim Kaine, and Delaware Senator Joe Biden. Obama said that he wanted someone with, quote, gray in his hair, who could give him credibility since he was a relative political neophyte. Obama campaign manager David Plouffe said that it was basically a coin toss between Biden and Biden, and Obama is reported to have remarked to Tim Kaine that Tim Kaine was the choice of his heart, but Biden was ultimately the choice of his head. Thus, Obama chose former, I would call him barely a primary opponent, Joe Biden, the longtime senator from Delaware, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Biden was chosen basically for three reasons. His foreign policy experience, which, you know, having only been in the Senate for a few years, Obama definitely lacked. Biden also had domestic and political experience since he had served in the Senate for decades, and he maintained a wealth of connections there. And for Biden's connection to blue-collar voters as a guy from Pennsylvania and Delaware. So uh, John McCain also had a short list, uh, which included initially actually formerly Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman, who is now an independent of Connecticut, and was of course also Al Gore's vice presidential nominee, as well as Mitt Romney and Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty. But he ended up choosing Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, and my, what a choice that was. Palin was relatively young. She was only 44 at the time, and she was still in the middle of her first term, having only served as mayor and city councilor of her small town of Wasilla before she became governor. But she hit on a non-white male demographic, and with a son deployed in Iraq, a special needs child, and a pregnant teenage daughter, she had a compelling life story, right? She was an interesting person. She was young. She had vigor. She was a reformer. The McCain campaign thought, you know, she might be kind of exciting, but they did kind of in private say that they threw long, right? They knew it was kind of a long shot picking her. Initial reaction was mixed. The McCain campaign raised about $7 million the day Palin was announced, and his approval rating among white women actually spiked as well. It also spiked among Jewish voters because Sarah Palin was an avowedly pro-Israel candidate. Um, she actually even had the Israeli flag in her governor's office. But seeing how she was only 44 and she was still in the middle of her first term, uh, some people did think that Palin did not have enough experience. Even some Republicans thought that. There, people were worried that it was going to take away sort of like the biggest advantage that McCain had over Obama, which was that he was much more experienced. The Alaska Senate president and fellow Republican Lida Green said of Palin, quote, she's not prepared to be governor. How can she be prepared to be vice president or president? Look at what she's done to the state. What would she do to the nation? That's from her own party. Um, and lots of commentators thought choosing Palin, like I said, as a remain, took away the experience argument against Obama. Her speech at the convention was a hit, though. She kicked it off by asking what the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull was. Her answer was lipstick. And continued to go hard after Obama. She basically chartered the Tea Party movement and a lot of their rhetoric with this speech, the way she demonized the liberal media who, who looked down on small-town America. And she also criticizes Washington a lot and the Washington insiders, which is just weird to hear the incumbent presidential party say at a convention. Probably smart, though. Yeah, no, she's de- pretty definitely about. smart. <laughs> definitely smart. But just, just still, like, very weird. Because she yeah. can't use anybody's name. Right, Because right. it's like, oh, yeah, this guy that we nominated four years ago. So, very successful speech. McCain campaign, a huge polling bump. People were very stoked. And then things start to not go too well for her. Uh, first, there was just kind of like typical political scandal things. She flip-flopped on whether that she supported the so-called Bridge to Nowhere, which was basically this bridge that was going to be built from mainland Alaska to like a remote island in Alaska. It was literally a plank in her electoral platform. She said at the time that she wasn't going to allow the spinmeisters to turn this project into something that's so negative. But she changed her tune once Congress killed the project because they thought it was just a waste of money. There was also a scandal Scandal, which became known as Troopergate, in which she allegedly <laughs> fired the Alaska Public Safety Commissioner after he refused to fire a state trooper who also happened to be divorcing Palin's sister at the time. To be fair, this guy who this person did not fire, after internal investigation, it was revealed that he had threatened Palin's father's life, drank on the job, tased his stepson, and this being Alaska, shot a moose without a license. The most heinous of crimes. Right. So he probably deserved to get fired. But the way Palin handled it, I guess, was not particularly ethical. There's also a lot of scrutiny on how much money was being spent on Palin's wardrobe and makeup, and if directing so much money to those areas violated campaign finance laws. Hmm. Also, as a fun aside, her husband Todd was not a registered Republican, but was briefly a member of the Alaska Independence Party, as an independence from the United States. (laughs) Only for a few months, but still kind of (laughs) weird. Things got really nuts, though, when she started doing TV interviews. The McCain campaign initially tried to limit her media availability. They didn't have a lot of faith in her. 
and she made her first TV appearance in an interview with Charlie Gibson, which didn't go well. She couldn't give a straight answer on whether or not she supported the Bush Doctrine, for instance. And she had another interview with Sean Hannity, which was, like, fine. He just kind of asked the same... Softball. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, asked the same question to Charlie Gibson, so she knew it was coming. But the most famous of her interviews, of course, were the ones with Katie Couric. Basically, it was just one-on-one interview with Katie Couric. It was, like, a two-parter over two nights. Katie Couric asked her what newspapers and magazines she read, and Palin couldn't name any of them. She struggled to explain why being the governor of Alaska made her qualified to handle foreign policy, and she gave a very wordy, jumbled, almost nonsensical response about the bailout and why it would be helpful or wouldn't. This, of course, spawned Tina Fey's famous parody of Sarah Palin on Saturday Night Live, giving us the eternal Kent phrase, I can see Russia for my house, in reference to why she is qualified to be vice president. Which, if you ask most people today, they would probably say that they think Palin actually said that. She did not, in fact. We talk about <laughs> SNL a lot on this show. <laughs> it's the most, like, consistent political commentator. Yeah. yeah. You know? Her numbers tanked with white women voters after those interviews, and some conservative commentators actually called for her to resign from the ticket afterwards. There's also a movie called Game Change on HBO, which is, like, all about this mm. and how McCain's advisor, Steve Schmidt, like, kind of pushed Palin and then ended up regretting it. It's really good. Woody Harrelson's in it. Yeah. It's great. So all these interviews, with the spate of bad interviews occurring in the weeks before, there was a lot of buildup for the vice presidential debate. And this single debate between Biden and Palin is the most watched VP debate of all time and was, at the time the second most watched debate in presidential election history, period, coming second only to the 1980 presidential debate between Carter and Reagan. It was watched more than any of the Obama-McCain debates, and it wasn't until the 2016 presidential debates that they would get higher ratings. Palin comes out on stage and immediately asks if she can call Biden Joe, and continued to highlight fairly intentionally her outsiderness that she was not used to how this operates and is clearly not a washington insider biden did not actually go after palin very much he instead focused on mccain it's reported that obama was uncomfortable going after john mccain so biden you know perhaps being a bit more confident having been around longer did a lot of that biden questioned if mccain was really a maverick anymore showed off his own foreign policy knowledge and he effectively parried palin's criticism of obama though she failed to defend mccain during biden's attacks the gotcha moment of this debate was well biden was talking about military strategy in afghanistan and he kept saying only quote our commanding general apparently having forgot his name palin came in and countered by mentioning the general mcclellan by name and pundits that night critiqued Biden for not knowing the name. Of course, as soon as anyone actually did their research, they found out that there is no such General McClellan. (laughs) The commander was actually General McKiernan. Needless to say, (laughs) eventually polls appeared to indicate that overall Biden had won the debate, but that Palin had not done any further damage to herself, and the debate was not a disaster for her that many on the McCain side thought it would have been. As election day draws near, the economic situation in the country has dramatically deteriorated, with Senators Obama and McCain having to deal with response legislation on Capitol Hill in between debates. President Bush has called them to the White House to act with congressional leadership in solidarity. And as the financial crisis worsens, the scene looks increasingly worse for McCain. And sure enough, on election day, Obama carries every region of the country other than the South by double digits. With 365 electoral votes to McCain's 173, Obama took states as red as Indiana and North Carolina, and his victory was a signal of demographic shift in the more moderate, but now generally blue-leaning states like Virginia, Nevada, and the beautiful state of Colorado, which was the tipping point state in this election. Obama goes on to deliver a victory speech in Chicago of hope, optimism, and possibility, acknowledging the difficult times that would definitely lay ahead as he prepares to become the first African-American president in American history. Things got interesting for Palin literally hours after the race was called for Obama and Biden. She had her speechwriter prepare a first-of-its-kind vice presidential concession speech that she wanted to deliver before McCain's concession speech. McCain stopped through that this was not a thing that was going to happen because it had never happened in the history of American politics before. And she actually ended up going directly to McCain asking him if she could make the speech. And he said no. She would resign as governor in 2009, but continued to make herself visible throughout Obama's term. 
She's credited with coining the phrase death panels in reference to care rationing that would have to take place under Obamacare, a claim that was named PolitiFact's 2009 Live of the Year, and started a television career, first with Sarah Palin's Alaska on TLC, and later on Fox News with Real American Stories. The idea of Real American Stories is that she was going to interview American celebrities, but it turned out to be anything but real. Interview subjects L. Cool J and Toby Keith said that they had never met Palin and had no idea that their interviews were going to be used on her show. She founded a PAC called Sarah PAC and came under fire after the Gabrielle Gifford shooting since the PAC had sent out a graphic that included crosshairs over her district as a pro-gun control person. And she actually sued the New York Times for defamation for implying that there was a connection. She lost that suit. She also became a figurehead of the Tea Party movement, speaking at numerous events and continuing to slag off the Obama administration every chance she got. And her endorsement of Tea Party adjacent candidates like Nikki Haley, Christine O'Donnell, and Sharon Angle was credited with their victories in contentious Republican primaries. She declined to run for president in 2012 or 2016, but did endorse Donald Trump early on in 2016 before a lot of other Republicans, and supported Speaker of the House Paul Ryan's challenger in his district's primary. After Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski didn't vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court, Palin tweeted, Hey, Lisa Murkowski, I can see 2022 from my house, fueling speculation that she may challenge her in that year's primary. In the meantime, though, she recently made headlines when Todd filed for divorce in 2019, citing incompatibility of temperament. And they are now divorced. Yes. As we talked about. As of like a few days ago. <laughs> yeah. As for Joe Biden, while he was concurrently reelected to his Senate seat and went on, somewhat unusually, to be sworn in for his seventh term, which, fun facts that Mike and I were joking about before we recorded this, he's also the youngest senator ever to be sworn in for a seventh term, which is funny because... He old. <laughs> he spent his last few Senate days voting on a second troubled asset relief program authorization and on a fact-finding trip to Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, the first vice president-elect to go on such a trip. He resigned his Senate seat that he had held for 36 years, a few days before the inauguration, and on becoming vice president, he very deliberately sought to downsize the office after the runaway autonomy and power of the previous office holder, Dick Cheney. Biden did become a key counsel to the more unseasoned President Obama, closely involved in deciding on cabinet appointments and tasked with a wide variety of responsibilities. He'd take bi-monthly trips to Iraq, he was a major chaperone of policy goals through Congress, and on ever-present economic policy aims to combat the financial crisis and the subsequent Great Recession. He frequently played the role of contrarian in the administration, actually. He lost a battle with the now Secretary of State Hillary Clinton over withdrawing troops from Iraq. Over his years in office as VP, Biden regained his reputation for gaffes, famously remarking that the passage of the Affordable Care Act was, quote, a big fucking deal. But nonetheless, he and Obama developed a very clear friendship, perhaps aided by the fact that Biden's granddaughter and Obama's daughters all attended the same school. And Biden was a key agent and advisor in the room for many of Obama's major decisions. Though he developed a reputation for weak message discipline, that is, failing to stay on message relative to the administration, Biden was a key asset in breaking an increasing level of gridlock in Congress, especially after Republicans reclaimed the House in 2010. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell could trust Biden, and this was instrumental in staving off the debt ceiling crisis in 2011 and securing tax relief during the fallout from the recession. More or less, living up to the strengths that Obama had sought when he originally picked Biden, of course, he and Obama are going to run for re-election a few years later, and we will tell you all about that and whatever Joe Biden may be up to afterwards in our next episode. Okay, on to the main act. Mike and I each came to the table with five alternative picks for Obama's running mate and five for McCain's running mate. I will kick us off with the Democratic ticket. All right, number five. So I thought about Obama's picks <laughs> as a Venn diagram, you see, where you have three goals. One, you give Obama credibility in foreign and defense policy, because he's pretty new. Two, you keep a Senate seat under Democratic control. Three, you come from a competitive state. Basically, every person I could find could only pull off more or less two of these at the expense of the third. So what do you prioritize? In hindsight, knowing this election is a blowout probably helps in that you know he doesn't really need to win a swing state. And knowing that the 2010 midterm is like a Republican wave, you know probably to save Senate seats. But I also threw in a fourth consideration because we're getting pretty close to the present. <laughs> it's like, who do you look at looking forward to 2016, 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Who's going to lead this party? So my number five pick I went with Tom Vilsack former governor of Iowa, just a very likable guy. If there's such a thing as like a secret weapon for Democrats, 
I kind of think it's Tom Vilsack. He's an orphan with ambition who worked his way up. He became a small town mayor. You know, we're talking only a few thousand people in this town. Like Sarah Palin. <laughs> right, right. He became mayor after the, the town of Mount Pleasant mayor was shot he was gunned down which is crazy this is like a town of only like a few thousand people and the mayor was like assassinated by who a resident who had been complaining about a backed up sewer and he wanted the town council to pay for repairs to his house killed the mayor okay it's crazy right yes. anyway tom vilsack becomes mayor becomes governor of iowa you know he's he's been in iowa so i do think he lacks that foreign policy experience of course but he also doesn't have the baggage of having voted for the Iraq War, and he's been doing the real work that Democrats care about, you know? You know, he'd of course become Secretary of Agriculture for Obama, close with the Clintons. He's a feel-good pick. Yeah, I have Tom Vilsack as my number four pick, actually. Yeah, he's like a swing state governor from real America, right? Yeah. He also had to work, uh, while he was governor, the state legislator was controlled by Republicans, but just barely, so he's kind of like a uniter, right? He had to work with Republicans a lot. Uh, he was, in fact, a critic of the Iraq War and a big advocate for energy independence, so he kind of has that other feather in his cap, or it's like a new issue for him to pivot to. Yeah, I think this is a solid pick. I can understand why the Obama campaign didn't go with a governor. Yeah. Because I think there was a sense that they need, like, an experienced senator or something like that. Should I agree? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. my number five, mostly to, for that. To counter Obama's inexperience. And he's my number four for, I guess, similar reasons. But yeah, I, I, this article where in Morning Consult where they polled voters on where their ideal candidate would fall on the political spectrum and where they thought Trump and Biden fell respectively in that spectrum. The end result was that they thought Biden was more moderate than Trump, which is ironic because they thought Trump was more moderate than Hillary in 2016 for reasons unbeknownst to me. Yeah. But basically that, that led to this sort of like wider conversation about how people ideologically viewed candidates throughout the last few years and obama was considered very liberal right yeah and the idea of voting for you know is, is unfortunate to say but the idea of voting for a black man of a foreign sounding name flipped a lot of subconscious swishes in people's heads and i think tom vilsack you know he's just a regular old middle american like sarah palin's whole canard is that like well the, the liberals are looking down on on regular america and on small town america well tom vilsack is from small town america right and he's more qualified than sarah palin well that's the thing obama's very aware of right yeah is, is he he's remarked multiple times when your name is barack hussein obama the election's always going to be tight yeah it's a thing yeah. you have to be very conscious of mm. it's not a fair thing Right. But I, I do think there's there's a truth there in choosing someone from middle America mm. that's an unfortunate reality. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's my number five. Kind of sticking with that theme a little bit. I went with Ed Rendell, governor of Pennsylvania, former mayor of Philadelphia. He was the original America's mayor before Ruggiani stole that title. Al Gore called him that because by the time Ed Rendell became mayor of Philadelphia, it was kind of in a bad place. And he, he brought it back, basically, right? He improved city services and balanced the budget, even while also managing to cut taxes. I think it was the New York Times called it one of the most stunning turnarounds in recent urban history, To like Obama. He won his primary for his executive office for the governorship of Pennsylvania against an establishment Democratic pick who was, happened to be Bob Casey Jr., who is now senator from Pennsylvania. And was even considered to have a cutting-edge campaign website way the way back in 2002. He raised taxes on beer and cigarettes. He legalized slot machines and other gambling as a source of new tax income. He's basically just an example of, like, a, a guy who helped turn around a cash-strapped state. And, you know, it's like, have him do for America what he did for Pennsylvania, right? We're, we're in a recession. Everyone's thinking about the economy. Have a guy who weathered tough times on a smaller scale try and scale that experience. A big liability for McCain is the, is the idea that he's not really concerned with the economy, doesn't understand it, and is much more of, like, an old war horse. Um, whereas Rendell, Obama, they're, they're much more domestic policy-focused. He was also a staunch Hillary supporter during the primary. This is also kind of like a party unity thing, right? It's like, there are some people who are upset that Hillary didn't get the nomination, bring in someone who's maybe more closer to her ideologically, leech off some of those voters, because I'm sure they all paid attention to who the governor of Pennsylvania was endorsing, but <laughs> you, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I do think the alienated Clinton voter we'll talk about later is a problem for yeah. Obama. Well, first of all, how do you feel about an Eagles fan being uh, the vice presidential pick? <laughs> it's it's not ideal. My, my favorite somewhat problematic story about Etcherendel, this was, I think it was like two, 2010, and let me find the exact quote, but basically there was this like really bad snowstorm on the East Coast, and usually like you play f football through a snowstorm. Mm. This one was like so bad they had to cancel the Eagles game, and 
December of 2010, and his statement on it was, my biggest beef is that this is part of what's happened in this country. we become a nation of wusses. The Chinese are kicking our butt in everything. If this was China, do you think the Chinese would have called off the game? People have been marching down the stadium, they would have walked, and they would have been doing calculus on their way down. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ed. So, uh, he got a lot of, like, shit for that. He'd play very well in the Republican Party of today. He would. He got a lot of crap for that. He ha- apparently had his, like, own reserved seat, and, like, the ground crews, like, piled snow on his seat for the next <laughs> game. But that, that kind of sort of, like, rugged American attitude, maybe that could help Obama, even if he was an Eagles fan, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> So Rendell and Vilsack, because we can now kind of talk about them both this way, how big of a problem is the credibility for Obama? Neither of them have any... I I think Vilsack is more insidery, certainly now, probably Mm -hmm. not at the time. How big of a problem is it that these guys really can't offer Obama much help in foreign policy and defense policy? Yeah, I, th- I do think there's a problem. That's why they're lower on my list. But yeah. I-, I think it'd be wrong to say that they don't have any experience. Like, I don't think you could look at Ed Rendell and be like, well, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. It's like, well, no, he was mayor of one of the largest cities in the country. So I'm governor of one of the largest states in the country, right? Yeah. I, I don't think you could argue with that. And I-, I do think that part of Obama's appeal was that he was an outsider. Certainly at this time. At when this the administration time. is yeah. so unpopular. Yeah. yeah. And-, and I think that... This doubles down on that a little bit, right? There are some elements of the country who looked at Obama and saw just like a like a haughty, you know, Harvard law professor. It wasn't Harvard haughty law with two T's. Yeah, H A U G H T Y. Harvard law graduate, rather, University of Chicago law professor, and and kind of viewed him as the typical liberal elite. Well, if you get like someone like Vilsack or Rendell, who feels a little more down to earth, and there's a lot of sort of like loaded qualities in the phrase down to earth, but I, I think that helps him a little bit. Maybe it's not something he really needs in this election because he does do well in Indiana and Iowa and North Carolina, but maybe this is a thing he needs to think about more in the future. But, you know. I I kind of agree. All right, for my number four, well, I would be remiss in my duties, Mike, as a Hillary Clinton stooge (laughs) if I did not include Hillary Clinton as my number four pick. But I do think it actually makes a a certain amount of sense here. You see, the Obama campaign genuinely has a problem with female voters, especially with Clinton supporters. We'll talk about this more when we get to our McCain picks. This is like a very brutal, very bitter, divisive primary. It's nuts that lasts like the very last day. Right. It's like we we remember 2016 as as divisive. Not really. Hillary Clinton kind of had it sewed up no matter how much it didn't feel that way. Remember like uh, what? 2020 was divisive? No. Joe Biden kind of had it sewed up by March. Yeah. This campaign was nuts. And we're going to talk about like statistics on how aggrieved Clinton supporters were. This is like a very bitter primary for Democrats. And we're at a point where Obama does not need to play this election safe either, right? It would be shocking if he lost this one, especially towards the end here, right? He, he needs to play this election smart. And I think Clinton offers, A, a safe Senate seat to pull from. Democrats aren't going to lose that New York Senate seat anytime soon. She also offers the experience Obama is looking for as an insider. And I, I think having Clinton as a VP sets her up as a more likable persona for 2016, which is clearly what's going to happen. Is Hillary Clinton is going to run for president after mm-hmm. Obama. Secretary of State is like a great position. I think she did a great job. It's a bureaucratic position. It's one that I think people critique. Whereas when you're vice president, you kind of just get to be America's uncle and everyone kind of likes you. Mm-hmm. Or America's uh, aunt in this case. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I do think a unity ticket kind of makes a certain degree of sense, especially when the, the, the fact that by the end of this campaign, these guys are arguing over the tip of a needle, right? Is Obama and Clinton are actually very aligned on policy issues. Mm. This is not like a Clinton-Bernie-Sanders situation. There's not like a policy difference here. There's just a, this was a bitter primary difference. I think heal the wounds, elect the first African-American and first woman to be president and vice president. Wait for that blowback. I don't care what's going to (laughs) happen. Hashtag I'm with her. But like, take a risk, Obama. You can afford to take a risk this year. So I, I did not have Hillary Clinton in, in my list. There's nothing to do with her, really. I don't think that the Obama campaign thought they were in a place where they could nominate both a black man and a woman on the same ticket. But don't you think that's a mistake? I think they clearly could have. Obama wins this election on a landslide. Yeah, no, I think I, I, I agree that they probably still would have won, but I understand why they were being cautious. But um, this is in hindsight. <laughs> sure. I, 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 there was part of me that wonders how much interest there would have been on her end. I'm sure there probably would have been. Yeah. She said she'd do it. Yeah. Yeah. But like, she becomes Secretary of State. Yeah. Which yeah. is a very bold and admirable gesture on his part. I yeah. think that's a classy move. <laughs> it does set her up better for 2016. I mean, she's probably not wrapped up in Benghazi or an email controversy if she's not Secretary of State. 
so that helps. And she would have been doing something more visible from 2013 to 2017. I I, I, I just didn't go with her because it part of it because it just felt too obvious, and partly because I don't know that it was what the Obama campaign was going for. And it's like it was like New York and two liberal strongholds, but like it's not like Delaware was any right. <laughs> any more conservative than either of those. I, yeah, this is fine. I, I do just think that, and I, I hate saying this. I hate I hate being the person saying this, but like I do think it's at this point like it just like you'd, you'd have a tough time convincing the campaign to buy the idea of nominating Obama and Hillary on the same ticket from a demographic standpoint which is not yeah. fair not the way it should have been yeah but I, I I think that's probably like what they what what what, what the thinking was going on in and in hindsight I feel like they could have and we'll talk next episode right. we'll talk about that the Obama campaign actually started to do polling on mm-hmm. whether they should switch Biden for Clinton mm-hmm. I don't know I think they could have gotten away with it this time is that, yeah. like I, I have long said the Republicans could have nominated Jesus Christ, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they would have lost yeah, this election, yeah, right? Yeah. Is I, I think kind of my sentiments about the Obama presidency in general. I think he could have been a little bolder. Oh well, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yes, yeah. I think most people agree. Yeah, well, most people who like Obama agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bolder in taking away our freedom. <laughs> uh, cool. All right, you remember before you had Tom Vilsack. Yes. Okay, number three. I had Evan Bayh, senator from Indiana since 1999, former two-term governor of Indiana. He's got experience on the Senate Armed Services and Intelligence Committees. Charismatic. He held an 80% approval rating as governor, delivered what was at time the largest tax cut in Indiana's history. Then as senator, he was a centrist, serving on the Senate Banking Committee, going into the financial crisis, and leading on these issues as well. Pro-choice somewhat moderate on environmental and criminal issues. You do definitely lose the Senate seat with Bai, which is why he's only number three on my list. But he's going to retire two years anyway, and then in 2016 he's going to try and run and get it back, but he's going to lose. So I think he kind of, it kind of evens out. It's like, this is a Senate seat that's going to die. Geographically, Indiana is kind of a good play too. It's a state that's going to go for Obama by 1%, which is granted kind of a cherry on top in this election. But I think having a charismatic, centrist, wholesome-seeming candidate that at least appears to appeal to middle America in the Midwest might be very useful come 2016 or 2020. It's like, this is what I'm talking about, looking forward in election. Honestly, though, yeah, it's like, who's going to be strongest eight or 12 years later? I think Biden's kind of the perfect balance of, you know, he's young enough to be credible in the next decade. He's currently 64. He's 13 years younger than Joe Biden. But he also has, like, a Joe Biden level of experience. Yeah, so I had Evan Biden as my number two pick. Got a long career. He's a centrist to counter Obama's liberal image, like we were talking about. It's a state that goes to Obama, even though it keeps getting redder and redder and redder. It sets him up for a presidential run in the future, you're right. So he was kind of gung-ho on Iraq. And, and that was, I think, one of Obama's big appeals, right, was that he didn't vote for Iraq. Mm. Probably because he wasn't in the Senate to do so. But that, that was, that was like, a, a big sticking point for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I agree with your assessment. He, he seems like he could be the future of the Democratic Party, or at least just like a good person for Obama to hand the baton off to. Yeah, I, I like the idea of like, both, he's got both gubernatorial and senatorial experience. It's a lot of experience. Like he's been either a governor or a senator since 1989. It becomes much harder, like Biden made it hard, it becomes just much harder to make the experience argument against Obama. Yeah. Well, even though he's still young and still like fairly progressive, even though he's also kind of moderate. Yeah, he maybe maybe he's like a little boring, but you know, I, don't you think he's more charismatic than Biden? I don't know, because Biden has kind of like an avuncular quality. Oh, oh, avuncular. <laughs> that means <laughs> of, of or like an uncle. I know, I was reading that too. <laughs> uh, is it like written somewhere? The, the Economist called him the same thing. Oh really? This week. I yeah. had no idea. Whereas Biden is just kind of like a. He just like looking at him. If you're going to like the looks, he just kind of looks like a little bit more of a nerd. But <laughs> I think he looks more charismatic. I don't know. I don't know. I've literally never heard his voice, so I have no idea if you've ever oh, worked. I watch videos of all these guys just to make sure they don't sound like Gilbert Godfrey. Yeah, I choose. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think he'd be a decent pick. I don't really have much more to add. Maybe Indiana and Illinois is kind of bordering is kind of weird, but hey, Bill Clinton. I was going to say Arkansas and Tennessee. How how big a risk do you think losing the Senate seat is? This is two key years. That's true. Policy wise, uh, that's why he's number three for. Which the governor would appoint, at least for a duration here. Right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you don't have the supermajority, so I guess that kind of sucks. It does matter more in 2010, but it's it's it has seats going to fall anyway. Yeah, it's very short-sighted, right? Mm-hmm. It's like these are two years where you kind of really need by, mm-hmm. but after that, I think he's better suited in a general election in 2016, yeah. 2020. Yeah. Uh, my number three pick is a senator from Iowa, 
Tom Harkin, who I believe I picked for Clinton back in 1992. He's a Democratic institution from swing state. He's been in the Senate forever. He's basically the Midwestern and probably less gaffe-prone Biden, right? Um, he can give the relatively inexperienced Obama some credibility with people who may feel a little unsure about his qualifications. He had a famously friendly relationship with his counterpart, Chuck Grassley, who was a Republican from Iowa. has a good reputation on both sides of the aisle. He could help Obama dealing with the eventual Republican majorities in both chambers, while also probably making it easier for the Republicans to get a majority in both chambers. Like I say, he's, he's Midwestern Biden. He doesn't probably have quite as much foreign policy credentials because like, he was on the Health Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. He's a much more domestic-focused guy, but... It's the economy, stupid. This is the 2008 recession. We're thinking about the economy, the recession, and, and all of that. And I think Tom Harkin, it's a nice little sort of like reward for Tom Harkin for being such a good party soldier for a long time. He, he holds a very similar Biden-y role. Like I said, less gaffe-prone, maybe a little less controversial. And the governor of Iowa is a Democrat at this time. Yes. You actually do keep the seat. Yeah. He's also very pro-Israel, mm. which... Obama actually had a huge weakness with Jewish voters. Mm. Um, but it was like a thing that the Obama campaign right, was very right. conscious about. Yeah, I I don't know a lot to say. I just, I, I read that. I know he was a very pro-Israel mm. kind of guy. And I was like, oh yeah, boom, boom. Yeah, I get it. He is old. He will be yeah. 70 by the end of 2009. So maybe that's something you hold oh. against him. Oh yeah, he's pretty old. Um, so it probably doesn't set him up for a run in 2016. But, yeah. you know, it. What, what a way to ride into the sunset. <laughs> 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 the Obama logo. The He's sun's... still alive, so you never know. Yeah, I, I think that's why I didn't really consider him is because it, it's not very forward-looking. Mm. Which is, it's weird to have, like, a very forward-looking candidate, Barack Obama, and then it's like, well, we need someone forward-looking behind you as well. <laughs> it's just a weird thing as we get towards the present. Mm. Cool. My number two pick, kind of out of the blue here, I went with Sherry Brown, senator from Ohio, representative from Ohio before that, a fighter for the working man. We're finally in a four-year period where we're going to have a Democratic governor of Ohio. Seriously, it's been since Dick Celeste left office in 1991, and it's not going to happen again until, well, we still haven't had one since then. Brown is kind of like the Elizabeth Warren of his time, right? He's on the Banking Committee, which is a benefit here during the financial crisis. He's also on the Senate Help Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, like we talked about. Hmm, banking and healthcare. Who might that be useful for mm-hmm. <laughs> in 2009? He was opposed to the Patriot Act. He was opposed to the Iraq War. He has actually been in Congress for kind of a long time, most of which as a representative. You know, long enough that he'd be a steady hand. Not quite at the level of Joe Biden, but maybe like a newer, more visionary hand. I will concede he's pretty ideologically spread from Obama, and I think that would be a problem for Obama in the White House, as Brown was not the free trade advocate that Obama was, even if Obama did run as a free trade skeptic. I think, though they wouldn't get along in administration, I think the two campaigning together makes a lot of sense. I mean, Obama wanted to appeal to, he was worried about blue-collar voters not looking to him as a choice. I think Sherrod Brown is just a natural, easy play for that. Mm -hmm. He he comes from a swing state, Ohio, like the swing state, which is going to be close in this election and the next two elections, you know, probably three elections looking at 2020. I think he's well positioned for presidential run that he's always just kind of had the timing wrong on. And this keeps your Senate seat. He's kind of the only one I can find that has every single marker. Yeah. So I'm a Sherrod Brown fan, I guess. (laughs) Even though I don't agree with him 100% politically, I think he's a, a valuable politician to have in the Democratic's corner. I wrote an whole article about why it's a shame he didn't run for president in, in this year. But I didn't have him here because I just worry from like a purely public perception standpoint if he's going to look too similar to Obama. Granted, he's been in the House for a bit. He's still a first-term senator, probably more liberal than Obama, in certain aspects at least. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Obama already has his reputation of being quite liberal. I just worry if you're just kind of putting a hat on a hat. I just worry that it, it tugs the ticket to the left. I don't know if that's the direction Obama should go in. It with his ticket, maybe it's just where he should have gone policy-wise. Well, don't you think 2008 gives him an opportunity, right? I think he's hard-pressed to find someone he's going to lose this election with, especially when McCain nominates Palin mm-hmm. beside him, right? It's like, don't you think this gives him an opportunity to put Sherrod Brown, maybe they're a little ideologically spread, but then Obama plays the centrist in the administration. And this is like kind of a play. Politically, it's like, maybe then the country realizes that Obama's... Yeah, half the country thinks Obama's a socialist. They're wrong, mm. but they think of him as like this left-wing firebrand when it's actually Sherrod Brown. Maybe not a firebrand, but definitely left-wing. Mm. And maybe that helps, you know, Obama comes in with Mitch McConnell. He's like, well, Sherrod's telling me that uh, the minimum wage should go up $20, Mitch. I don't know. And Mitch is like, oh, no, no, whoa. <laughs> 
that, 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 that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. And I didn't really think where it's it's really where you just sort of changing the perception of the candidates by that contrast. Yeah. I, I I didn't think of it that way. That feels like a little bit like a gambit to me still. But it's weird that Sherrod Brown, I feel like, actually uh, appeals to more conservative voters. Is I see, yeah. like, blue-collar voters in Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan loving Sherrod Brown. Oh, yeah. I mean, they do. They keep re-electing him. Yeah. Uh, these yeah. are states that have, you know, obviously <laughs> the voted The voters in Wisconsin and Michigan do vote for the senator of Ohio. Well, I mean, I mean, they, they <laughs> I know what voted you for Donald Trump and... In Ohio, yeah. Yes, in Ohio they voted. The same kind of voter. Yeah. As of 2020, he, he is the last... Democrat to win statewide office in Ohio. So you're right. There's something about him that appeals to that, this sort of Rust Belt demographic. Yeah. So I think there's something there. I just I wonder if it's going to, to mix with Obama, I guess. Yeah. That's why he's my number two. All right, Evan Bayes, number two. All right, number one, someone who is definitely going to mix with Obama, Tim Kaine, popular governor from a state that last went for a Democrat in 1964. Which is crazy to think about. Isn't that nuts? I had no idea. Right? Especially because we considered quite blue now. Clinton lost Virginia twice. It blows my mind. Um, But he won, like, Arkansas and Tennessee and Louisiana. You're not going to lose a Senate seat. This is a sitting governor. You get a Southerner. A Southerner who grew up in, like, Kansas. Well-respected by the party. A party insider. He's a Beltway governor. Obama loves Tim Kaine. Wanted to choose him. But like he said, it was the choice of his heart, not his head. Just a good-hearted guy. He's Joe Biden, just with, like, a bit less foreign policy experience. But he also has less Washington baggage. He's got more state competitiveness. This is, like, reminiscent of Clinton Gore in 1992. These are two forward-looking younger guys. It's a Democratic ticket, not afraid to try new things. Look, I get why Biden was a stronger pick on the surface. Obama looking into this thinking, you know, this election, maybe some people won't like me. I think, yeah, going on this is like Obama can afford to be bolder. And I think he should have been bolder. And yet that's my sentiment on his presidency. And I think Tim Kaine is a way to do that. It's like, this is clearly a guy that you would have been simpatico with. You know, you're very much aligned. Go for Tim Kaine. Go for a forward futuristic Democratic Party while also kind of giving you everything you need. Yeah, I also had Tim Kaine's my number one. I don't know if they have like a ton to add. Very forward looking. If people think of like Joe Biden was America's fun uncle, I feel like Tim Kaine's like America's like cool dad. Not like cool dad, <laughs> but his the like That's dad joke. Like those dad. Hillary Clinton emails tried to market to right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or he, he's, he's just kind of like, yeah, he's, he's like a fun dad. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that having sort of like Obama the celebrity and Tim Kaine the dad, I think is like a good <laughs> contrast, right? I think it works. Yeah, he, like that, you know, he's able to win in this state that has been like relatively red. He's he's definitely an insider, but it feels like he's sort of like a benevolent insider in a way. It's like he's he's an, he's as insidery as a governor can be. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. He's not like a bureaucrat. He's more of like a party man, which maybe makes him a bit more problematic. But, you know, he was also, he was mayor of a town. He was mayor of Richmond. He was lieutenant governor. He was governor. He's like worked his way up the ranks. His appeal would be enduring. He was elected to the Senate in 2012, right? And also governors of Virginia can't run for re-election. So it's like, yeah, yeah. you either become president or you become senator, right? As they all do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I, I like this pick. I don't, I don't have much else to add. Maybe a little thin on foreign policy, but I think kind of like what you said, like Obama's going to win this. And I don't think anyone... Does anyone think Obama's not going to surround himself with, like, foreign policy wonks? Yeah. I don't... I don't... I don't know. And he has... Obama has been in the Senate. He was on the Foreign Relations Committee. Mm -hmm. That's how he and Biden actually met. No. Yeah. I I do think it's a legitimate thing. The experience thing is is for sure there. I just think be a little bold. Mm -hmm. Be bolder. Get what you want, Barack. Right. You know? Take what you want. (laughs) All right. Those are our picks for Obama. As for trends... You know, we're talking mostly senators from the Midwest. We got only a couple governors, but when we've got them, we love them. Mm. Are we going for party unity here? I don't know. A lot of Clintonites. Got some Clintonites. I mean, wasn't most of the party like Clintonites at this point? Yeah, yeah, She'd been there for way longer. Uh, Only one woman, Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton. No minorities. So we don't think it should be two minorities on the ticket. But it's not a question of should. (laughs) Yeah. It's a question of, is America ready for this? Which is a terrible thing to say. Yeah. But it's a question people were asking was, is America ready for a black president? And considering that we've had literally one president who is not a white male in the entire 200 some odd years of existence of the country. I know I have to be the one who talks about all of this, but it's like, I don't want to say it's playing it safe, but it kind of is. Yeah, I agree. I would have been shocked if it would have had like Barack Obama and Chuck Rangel. 
Sure, Obama wrangle. Cool. I would've been shocked. That would've yeah. been shocking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As for who Obama actually considered, Indiana Senator Evan Bay, Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd, Virginia Governor Tim Kaine, Kansas Governor Kathleen Sebelius, Texas Representative Chet Edwards, New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, Rhode Island Senator Jack Reed, and of course, Joseph Biden. All right, let's go over to that Republican ticket. Kick us off, Mike. All right, so for my number five pick, I have independent senator from Connecticut and John McCain's best friend, well, not best friend, John McCain's friend, Joe Lieberman. Sorry about Joe Lieberman, of course, that he was a Democrat, obviously, he was Al Gore's running mate. He lost the 2006 Senate primary to Ned Lamont, ran under the party title Connecticut for Lieberman, and would actually win his Senate seat. He's a foreign policy hawk, is kind of why he lost the primary, right? He endorsed McCain as opposed to Obama. He went against the party line in that. This pick not only sets McCain up as, like, separate from the Republican establishment, because he's literally not picking a Republican as his running mate, but it could also attract Obama skeptical Democrats away away from the Obama ticket. That was literally Lieberman's job in the McCain campaign. He, he founded this banner organization, whatever, called Citizens for McCain, which focused specifically on disgruntled Hillary Clinton supporters. And also, like, you know, he was a big supporter of Israel, too, so maybe it also pulls over some of the Jewish vote as well. Here's why he's only my number five, though. So he's my number two. Yeah. I should jump in here. Yeah. But go on. <laughs> Here's why I'm a number five. Okay. So foreign policy hawk, big on intervention, voted for the Iraq war, Afghanistan. He loves all that stuff. <laughs> all these things we love today. Right. Here's other pieces of his political positions. He has an F rating from the NRA. He has a 100% rating from the AFL-CIO. He has a 100% rating from NARAL, the pro-choice group. He has an 88% rating from the Human Rights Campaign, the, the gay rights organization. And he opposed Bush's Social Security plan and his stem cell research ban. So yeah, he had more conservative views on the death penalty and school choice and things like that. And he's a big interventionist, defender of the Iraq war. McCain's no dove, I will grant you. But putting a mostly Democrat, like someone who mostly agrees with the Democratic platform, but, but supports the least popular aspects of the Republican agenda on the ticket, I feel like can just antagonize a lot of people. You're going to antagonize conservatives who think he's not pure enough to be the vice president ideologically. And you're going to maybe antagonize independents who wanted to get away from the Iraq war in the first place. I kind of feel like there's maybe only room for one Maverick on the ticket. <laughs> Lieberman is just, I just see him pissing off too many people. I, I, he's still better than Sarah Palin's so why he's my number five. <laughs> but like, he's only number five. He's my number two, because I think McCain very, very much so needs a game change here. I think McCain is going to go down in flames and he needs to do something very bold. Lieberman is his close friend. He loves Joe Lieberman. <laughs> in fact, he and Lindsey Graham and Lieberman become known as the three amigos. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? Look, McCain needs to run. He needs to run away from the Republican establishment as fast as he possibly can. I think he's pretty separate from them. I think running to an independent former Democrat is like a pretty good way to do that too. Your point that the only things Lieberman's on record are like the least popular things of the Bush administration, that's a fair concession. I will give you that. I think the 100% rating from the AFL-CIO is actually useful for McCain. That, that's I think, fair. I think you that's can turn fair. something there yeah. Yeah. that you know the Republican Party will try years later, Yeah. right? This, this is a guy that left the Democrats and won on his own at the height of Democratic popularity in 2006. It's like, McCain and Palin do not go well together. They don't no. campaign together. <laughs> like, McCain avoids her. They, they obviously, like, basically a wall between them. Right. I think having Lieberman and McCain shows a relationship, a united force against the perhaps more tepid Obama-Biden marriage of the time. So here's my two responses. Is that sure? So AFLC, I think I think that's a good point. Where it's like, there's no reason unions have to vote for Democrats, um, <laughs> and and that was made somewhat clear in 2016. But it really is not uh, indicative of where the Republican Party would go within the next eight years. But don't you think this is a chance for McCain to drive the direction? Right. Of the party? Yeah. He yeah. sees that the Bush doctrine and yeah. the Bush wing is not the way to go. Yeah. So he's going to very dramatically drive to the middle. And, and, and I will kind of make that argument later on. My other thing is that I will occasionally skim National Review and American Conservative just to get a different viewpoint from my own. And they have been throwing a fit over Trump-appointed justices voting for anti-discrimination protections to LGBT people, right? Because they're very, they're like Christian conservative leaders talking about staying home in November because they don't like Donald Trump. A man who has done everything to pander to this base has not delivered adequately in their mind. And I just think that they stay home again if you nominate Joe Lieberman. McCain's in a very big hole and he can't he can't give up that base. I think there's an opportunity to like drop all this culture war shit with Lieberman. 
Dick Cheney's come out in favor of gay marriage, right? It's like, let's give it up. Just yeah. give it up. McCain's running on experience. He then totally trips over himself by putting Palin on the ticket. Go for the drive. Go for a guy you know, guy you like. Anyway, it would have been interesting. Yes. Game changing. Right. All right. It would have been like the first cross-party ticket since 1864, right? A good year. I can't, I can't <laughs> yeah. think of any others. Yeah. Certainly major ticket. Yeah. My number five, I went with Mitch Daniels, the governor of Indiana, former OMB director until 2003. You know, of course, OMB director under George W. Bush. Maybe, maybe spin his <laughs> leaving OMB in 2003 is, well, I can't be involved in this anymore. <laughs> I'm going back home to make a difference. The Bush administration is a lost cause. Yeah, so maybe you avoid some of that tainted Bush mark at the federal level. I think McCain needs a governor. I don't think McCain is going to do very well with most senators, though I am going to choose a couple senators here like Lieberman. Indiana is a Midwestern state that goes for Obama by 1%, which is very embarrassing for Republicans who had not lost Indiana since 1964. This is like the first of many just non-federal Republicans and others who have a record against kind of the mainstream party. Mitch Daniels is a domestic guy. He's focused on state issues, expanding health care in Indiana, fiscal austerity. He's like a true fiscal conservative. I think he'd be inoffensive to mainstream Republicans who are, like you said, kind of skeptical of McCain's maverickness. It's like they're not going to doubt that Mitch Daniels is with them on gay marriage or a woman's right to choose. And he's from a state that is very close. <laughs> yes. I, so I had Mitch Daniels as my number two pick. Um, so we did a switcheroo. We did, yes. For, for a lot of the reasons you named, you know, he's from a, a close state. And I, I think he does represent where the Republican Party would go during the Obama years, where it's just kind of like an almost myopic focus on fiscal policy. Maybe not quite as conservative as like Paul Ryan, but he, but he tries to put a lot of those ideas into action. I mean, he had a conservative solution to sort of like dealing with Indiana's economy, a lot of spending cuts, tax cuts, a lot of privatization, and also like very anti-union. He's kind of like a proto-Tea Partier in a way. And while, while certainly not as inflammatory or, or racist, frankly, I, I, I like him for that reason. He, he, he's a wonk in some way. He seems like he's kind of like a budget wonk. And I think that, again, like I was saying before, that, that was McCain's big weakness. I remember I, so I was in the academic team in high school. I was very cool. And lived in New Jersey, of course. This was like during the election. And I, we went to a tournament at Princeton University. And there were like campus Democrats selling shirts that said like, I could be John McCain's Econ 101 professor. Mm. You help sort of improve that image if you pick a guy whose who's main focus as governor was was the economy. Well, and the economy is like a major liability for McCain, right? Like a very famous blunder of McCain's is like on September 15th of 2008, which is a very infamous day if you studied economics, <laughs> it's the day Lehman Brothers went under, McCain like gave a speech and he was like, the fundamentals of the economy are strong. And it's like the entire world was falling apart when he said that mm -hmm. that day. So I think that's a, that's a legitimate point. I do like your point is he's kind of like a budget wonk. I don't think people see McCain that way. I think they see him as more of like a foreign policy guy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I do feel like he is very, he resembles where the Republican Party is going to go in the next six years. Yeah. Certainly not in the next eight. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Number four, I had Tim Pawlenty, governor of Minnesota. Another Republican survivor of 2006 in a, in a fairly democratic state. Big on balancing the budget without raising taxes. Big on public works projects. He finally got the Minnesota Twins in an outdoor stadium. So they can have the experience of playing, you know, fall baseball in Minnesota. Um, <laughs> Teapaw, as he's called, by you at least. Tackled big budget issues. Big on clean energy. Like I said, one in a blue state. America's very blue right now in more ways than one. He clearly knows how to operate. He was kind of controversial as Minnesota governor. There's lots of arguments about whether or not the things he did with their budget and in the fiscal policy in general was like <laughs> positive. But he's kind of like Daniels in that it is looking a bit to sort of what the Republicans would become over the next eight years or so from a, a Midwestern state that is fairly blue. So maybe he knows some secret sauce on, on how to win in places like that. Yeah, I have Tim Pawlenty as my number four as well. He's a survivor. You know, he was reelected in 2006, which is a very hard thing to do <laughs> if you're a Republican in a blue state like Minnesota. And he goes on message for avoiding Republicans on a federal level, pivot towards state leadership. You know, he more or less successfully maneuvered these deficit issues in Minnesota, preserved education funding while doing so, which is kind mm -hmm. of rare. I don't think Daniels or he, which is why they're my five and four, will win this election for McCain. I think they just kind of save face. Mm -hmm. Lieberman, I think, could make an argument, which is why I make him number two, mm -hmm. that he's a little more competitive, or he at least changes things. Pawlenty and Daniels aren't going to change the outcome, right? Right, right. Another reason I bumped Pawlenty down 
is because of that Mississippi Bridge oopsie daisy that his vetoes of infrastructure funding taxes may or may not be related to. <laughs> that, that That's a problem. Yeah. yeah. Which was, what, like a year before this, two years before this? Mm. I, I just think he's like a digestible choice. Minnesota is a state that Trump actually nearly wins as well. It's mm. kind of a rapidly purpling state, even though it is the state that has historically voted for Democrats the longest. Hmm. It is the only state Ronald Reagan did not win in 1984. Mm. There you go, Tim Pawlenty. Yeah. Number three, I went with Lindsey Graham, the aforementioned Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, former congressman, buddy slash devotee of John McCain. An amigo. Yeah, an amigo. <laughs> Believe it or not, there was actually time when Graham was lauded for his bipartisan efforts. He and Hillary Clinton used to be friends. Yeah. Isn't that sad? Yeah. Makes me sad. Uh, while I did favor an aggressive foreign policy, he also worked to ban waterboarding and on comprehensive immigration reform, campaign finance reform. So he's not really like a game change pick by any means. And he doesn't really afford a big demographic advantage because it's South Carolina. But... I think this is one way in which McCain can help reshape the party in his own image. It shows that he's seizing the party away from Bush. I'm putting my friend, my amigo, <laughs> in the ticket. And this is like, if I win in that unlikely event, it sets him up to run in the future as well. I'm going to make the Republican Party the Maverick Party. I'm going to reshape it in my image. Just like a more moderate look on the party. So basically what I said for Lieberman, but now you're saying... Yeah, Graham. but the difference is that, like, <laughs> Lieberman was a Democrat who, who was, like, very... Who spoke at the Republican National Convention <laughs> in 2008. You don't do that if you're a Democrat anymore. Who was very socially liberal. Okay. Do you worry about Graham's ties to Bush foreign policy? How, like, like Lindsey Graham's a little scaredy boy and he just does whatever the president says? A little bit, but, you know, maybe you try and... You try to spin that as patriotism or something, I don't know. I mean, McCain kind of has the same problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what they expected 2008 to be. It was like, well, in 2004, we were able to be like, look, the Republicans are going to protect you. The Democrats want to give in to Al-Qaeda. Right. And I think in 2008, they were expecting the same thing. And when their opponent's name was Barack Hussein Obama, they were like, oh, my God. <laughs> Like, is that they're here. Christmas came early, <laughs> yeah. right? And then the recession happened. They're like, well, crap. We already took this very bad situation and made it worse. Hmm. Not to say that I think Obama would have lost if the recession hadn't happened, but I think it helped. He's, he's also a veteran, right? You have two veterans on the ticket. Who better to pull, you know, America through these difficulties than, than two guys who, you know, have, have served and, and know what it takes? I think this is just another better than Palin pick. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do like the the opportunity McCain has to change the party in his image. I do wonder how well that works. It's like you and I were kind of talking a couple nights ago about how Romney kind of failed to do that. In 2012, mm-hmm. it's like, the Republican Party made a choice. It's like, okay, we're going to be this kind of party. Romney and Paul Ryan are basically just, like, the same guys, just one's, like, younger than the other, right? Yeah. And, like, Lindsey Graham would be kind of this choice in this year, right? It was like mm-hmm. John McCain, Lindsey Graham are, like, the same guy, one's just younger. Yeah. I, and I don't know that how well that works, right? Because I right, feel like, right. obviously, 2012 to 2016 is a very different direction yeah yeah. i think that that, that's totally if you lose the election i'm not sure you're able to shape it as well right Right. yeah yeah Yeah. small bench for the republicans this year yeah (laughs) yeah my number three i went with a controversial pick i went with michael bloomberg the mayor of new york city another independent formerly a republican until 2007 which is to be fair probably a good time to say yeah i don't want to do this anymore yeah Look, polls indicated that Republicans were not trusted on the economy. The economy is going to shit. The center point of this is New York City. Successful billionaire Mike Bloomberg can fix that. It's also kind of a throwback to the type of like 20th century Rockefeller Republicans that used to lead Republican tickets, right? With McCain and Bloomberg, you kind of have that like Rockefeller Republican plus Western hero. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a nice like throwback. Maybe yeah. it plays well. Reminds you of Reagan or Goldwater. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. This is like a post-partisan pick. This is kind of how I feel about Lieberman, except I think Lieberman's a little bit stronger. It also hits Obama's weakness with Jewish voters. You get Bloomberg, mm-hmm. bada-bing, bada-boom. Useful in states like Florida and Pennsylvania with large Jewish populations. Like Lieberman, like we were saying, does this leave you vulnerable to the far right? Yeah. Pro-gun control, New York City mayor, pro-choice, running mate, with a renegade like McCain. It's probably a little dicey, but if you're going for like this post-partisan solution to your, you know, what's called the daddy problem, where it's like voters vote for Republicans when they want to feel safe, but they're voting for Democrats when they want healthcare and the economy to be better, which is what 2008 is, I think Bloomberg is a good way to do that. Bloomberg can be the mommy while McCain is the daddy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and America's the baby. 
<laughs> this is a controversial this pick. This is a weird pick. It is weird. But I think you need a little weird this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. I do wonder how, how amenable Bloomberg would be to it, since he did, in fact, leave the Republican Party. But the Republican Party still, I believe, endorsed him in his mayoral election, so they like him, I guess. It's interesting you said the thing about, you know, he's very pro-gun control, but he is very conservative on issues of, like, law enforcement. He still defends Stop and Frisk to this day. Mm. And I think that maybe you can start stoking that fire a little bit, sort of solve for the gun control problem with the, the law enforcement problem. But you can make Bloomberg or Law and Order candidate, which I think, I don't know why that made me laugh, just I think I find Bloomberg, like, not an intimidating presence. Yeah. He's, like, very short and has, like, a whiny accent. But <laughs> I, mean, I bet if you get, like, a Giuliani endorsement or something like that, yeah, it could help. And, you know, look, he also won in New York as, like, a center-right guy. New York, obviously, very, very, very liberal. So, yeah, I, I guess this has potential. It's, it's a little bit, maybe it's too big of a leap for me. I, I think there's a needle you can thread to make it work. Mm-hmm. I do think it would definitely be shocking. Yeah. There are, like, a ton of articles that's like, Michael Bloomberg for VP for either McCain or Obama. <laughs> Apparently, a lot of people were talking about, like, he's a great VP for both of them. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see it. Yeah. I, I was going to say, like... You had an issue with me picking Wesley Clark as, like, a political opportunist, where it's like, Bloomberg is also kind of a political opportunist. Oh, for sure. Where he's changed parties, like, four times. But it's useful this time. Yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. In 2004, becoming a Democrat isn't useful. It's just no. kind of like, oh, okay, oh, okay, this just happens to be the party that doesn't have a president running this year. Yeah, yeah. All right, number two, you had Mitch Daniels. I had Joe Lieberman, the big switcheroo. Number one pick. So I had Olivia Snow, the senator from Maine. Uh, she survived the 2006 decimation of Republicans. <laughs> Friend of McCain, and she's moderate, she's popular, and she's a woman, which, hey, maybe helps key into that demographic that the Palin pick was trying to key into, but, you know, she's not Sarah Palin, which, which helps. It's a big do-no-harm do thing. She's pretty uncontroversial. And, you know, maybe leeches off some Hillary support who are really, really looking forward to having a female nominee. And, and now they have one. Granted, not going to be president, but... Not also, yet. Not yet. But maybe eventually in the future. I mean, it's still your statistics. In, in 2016, you know, there's a lot of controversies about, like, you know, did Bernie supporters vote for Clinton? 10 to 12% of them actually voted for Trump. But 15 to 20% of Clinton voters voted for McCain in 2008. Party unity, my ass thing, Puma... Um, they felt abandoned by the Democratic Party. She's she being Snow is pro-choice. She's a prominent Republican from the Northeast. Could probably appeal to a moderate, independent base, and especially a woman. Well, like Mike said, he stole my statistics because Olympia Snow is also my number one pick. Yeah, I think there's a big gap here with dissatisfied Hillary voters. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, I, I don't think people realize how upset Clinton supporters were in 2008. I mean, my mother still complains to this day <laughs> about it. I think putting a woman that McCain likes on the ticket makes sense. You don't want to seem outdated and old, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's what they tried to do with Palin. It's just Palin, McCain, A, doesn't like her. And turns out she's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think putting a woman on the ticket to counter kind of this, like, insurgent Democratic, we're the party of the future, it's a good move. Olympia Snow is, like, a moderate, you know, not connected with the Bushes, survivor from a fairly blue state way to do that yeah i mean i I wish i had more to say about her i mean we talked about her a couple times she was a popular choice of mine in like 96 and 2000 is like because she has this tragic life story like joe biden but she's also like a groundbreaker like hillary clinton and i think this is a year where you're kind of up against both joe biden and hillary clinton and barack obama olympia snow is a good way to counter kind of all three of them right yeah there you go. Okay. All right. As for trends for our McCain picks, you know, we got kind of half outsiders, half insiders. Pretty mavericky insiders when we have them, though. And just the one woman. Which is kind of interesting, because I feel like, I mean, would you agree that we need not a white dude with McCain? I would agree. I just think there aren't very many Republican politicians <laughs> who both fit that and have, like, good experience. Yeah. I thought about Alan Keyes, but he's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and no one knows who he is. Yeah. There's just not a lot to, to draw from. Yeah, it's the problem with the Republican Party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As for who McCain actually considered, yeah, Joe Lieberman, former Democrat, now independent senator from Connecticut, former Homeland Security Secretary and former Pennsylvania governor and running mate's favorite, Tom Ridge, former Massachusetts governor and sex icon, Mitt <laughs> Romney, and Minnesota governor, Tim Pawlenty. Speed round, any names that you thought might have been fun or quirky, Mike? 
So I thought about Max Baucus, senator from Montana, which was actually a very close state, Montana. It is. It's um, nuts. It goes for McCain by only 2.2%. Yeah, which is crazy. And Max Baucus, Democrat from Montana, which goes against the popular perception of Montana. Right. He, you know, it, it's that's kind of like a Biden pick. He, he'd been in the Senate for a while. And so it's just like it, it, it lends, you know, more credibility to Barack Obama, who is seen as an experienced. But the reason I didn't ultimately put him on there is because Montana is quite small, electoral vote-wise. And also because we talked about, like, Senate majorities. And I didn't, like, think about that too much when I was making my picks. I feel like it's going to just be much harder to get a Democratic senator in Montana than it is in Delaware. Yeah. Or even, like, Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> Montana. Really good at electing Democrats, as it turns out. Yeah. I had General James Jones from Missouri. I don't know. Maybe Obama needs a general. Who would argue he doesn't have defense experience, you know? Right. Uh, I also wrote down Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer. Justin, you're basically the same thing. Montana is weirdly achievable this year. That would have been interesting. Yeah, I, I, I had Matt Blunt, who was governor of Missouri. Because, you know, we talked about how, how McCain probably needs governor. Matt Blunt, rel- relatively young, kind of a fresh face. There was a scandal where he, like, allegedly misused state offices and, like, didn't comply with, like, sunshine laws and things like that. So it seemed like a bit too much of a liability in a state that was going to go for McCain, even though it was a little close. It wasn't a little close. It was, it was very it was, close. It was very close. It was the closest state. It was. Never mind. It was mind. for McCain by 0.13%. Very close, but Maplin decided not to run for a second term because of the scandal. Mm. So yeah, it, it, it's too, too, too much of a liability. Yeah. All right. In conclusion, Mike, if you could change the running mate for the two candidates, would you? <laughs> yeah, definitely for McCain. <laughs> Because Sarah Palin's train wreck did not go the way he was expecting. So, yeah, absolutely. Just, just like, not a good pick at all. I get what they were going for. Be, like, I have just very vivid memories of the Sarah Palin thing. Like, finding out, being like, who the heck is this? And, like, no one knowing. And then sort of, like, growing up in a Republican household. Like, the arc of, like, oh, I actually really like her. And then it sort of crashed down to, like, eh, she's not like, super, you know. So, yeah, absolutely for McCain. As far as Obama goes, you could, but I, I have no problem with Joe Biden. I think that it gave Obama what he needed as far as experience went, as far as credibility went. And I think Biden just, you know, we're, we're seeing it now. Like Biden appeals to independents. Yeah. At least he seems to. And I certainly hope he keeps appealing to them. He, he has this kind of like regular guy appeal to him. And I, I think that, that that contrast with Obama, who, you know, came off as more of like the University of Chicago law professor. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree for Palin. The, the Hippocratic Oath applies to vice presidential picks. Do no harm. That should be, like, the first law. And, Jesus Christ, vet your vice presidential picks. Dan Quayle, Sarah Palin, John Edwards. <laughs> learn learn to vet, people. Uh, yeah, I agree. I get what they're going for, but McCain was an old guy. Mm-hmm. God forbid McCain won the election. He dies not long after Trump becomes inaugurated. Mm. The stresses of the presidency yeah. are yeah, very the much thing. there. Yeah. There's a very likely chance that McCain would have died in office. Mm-hmm. God forbid. Mm-hmm. This is dangerous. This is right. like dangerous right. shit. Like Dan Quayle was dangerous. This is very dangerous. Well, it's like Dan Quayle was dumb, but Sarah Palin takes it on kind of like another level. I feel. There's like an ignorance there that is... I feel like it's more like Dan Quayle's like incompetent. Yeah. Whereas like Sarah Palin's, like you said, ignorant. And just like not not ready for prime time. But look at us now in 2020 where our right. president I mean, is like, neither. Who, who cares? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, as for Biden, yeah, I think I more or less agree. I, I do think, I mean, it kind of depends what's going to happen, right? This November, mm-hmm. Biden, when Obama was deciding between Kane and Biden and Bay, is like Biden kind of has this very high upshot. There's the chance that he could be amazing, but there's also this risk where it's like he's gaff prone, he's kind of bumbling. It's like there's there's a world where, you know, facing the coronavirus and the, the ravage of the Donald Trump presidency where Joe Biden becomes like the FDR of the 21st century and like reforms America and becomes this like great icon. There's also a world where he just kind of blunders into oblivion. Mm. And I guess we have yet to see. Let's hope it's the four. <laughs> um, Let's hope he wins first. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he more or less did for Obama what he needed. I, I think that was a fine choice. I, I don't think things would have changed very much if that would have been Tim Kaine or Evan Bye. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Cool. Well, that's our show. You can find us everywhere that podcasts are found, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can, as always, find all of our works on thepostwriter.com, including our Running Mates portal. In the meantime, I have been Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we will catch you in our next episode on the 2012 vice presidential election between Barack Obama's retention of that spry Joe Biden and Mitt Romney's pick of the bodacious (laughs) Paul Ryan. See you then.